look at this word, guide and lead us and show us what you would have us to see from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear unto me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compass me, and the pains of hell get hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. I called upon the Lord, upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord, O Lord, I beseech you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he helped me. Return unto your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I, I have spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant that and my, the son of your handmaiden that you have loosed my bonds. I will offer it unto you in the sanctuary of thanksgiving. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise you the Lord. This is one of those nice upbeat psalms that, uh, that uh, every, we get every once in a while. And it starts, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear unto me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. And why do we why do we really love the Lord? Because he does hear our voice. He, do, you know, and it is amazing. And in John, we're told we love him because he first loved us. You know, that that's the completion of it. He loved us, so we love him. But you know, the psalmist is writing, "I love you because you." Basically, he's saying, "Because you love me, you hear my." call. You hear my voice. You hear my supplications. And supplications we've talked to you are your petitions before God, what you want from him. But he also, before that, and I love the way he put it, you hear my voice and my supplications. You hear me when I just call to you, even when I'm not presenting my supplications. And we've talked about that when we talk about prayer. In the top of our, of our uh, prayer guides, we have the, the word acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And as I've said, it probably always should have been cats, but I'm not the one that made the, the acronym, and I'm not going to second-guess these really smart guys that did it. But I would think confession should be before, even before adoration. But either way, it doesn't matter. And this is what he's saying. You hear my voice. When I just talk to you, God, you're hearing my voice. And by the way, when I give you my supplications, you're hearing those. But he puts it in the right order. You hear me when I'm just talking to you. And this is what we've said many times about prayer and God. So many people, their prayers are, God, give me, give me, give me, give me, or even sometimes occasionally give them. But they never get to the place of God, you know, I just love you because you've, of what you've done for me. I thank you for your sal the salvation you've given me. I, God, you are just so wonderful. You're, you're tremendous. You know, we sang, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised this morning. Do we spend time literally telling God how great he is and that he is worthy of praise and meaning it? And uh, here he's saying that's the order he puts it. Because you have inclined your ears unto me. And this literally means stretched out. Stretched out your ears. 
When people work with children, one of the first things you're taught to when you're working with children is to get down on their level. If you're as tall as I am, you, you bend down, you, you kneel down, you sit down and talk with kids. You don't tower over them in, in, in a fearful position. And he says, God, you've inclined yourself. You have bent down to listen to me. Can you picture that? The God of the universe bending down to hear this little insignificant ant on, the, on this planet talking to him. <laughs> and yet that's what he does for us. He inclines himself to hear us. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it. He is the God of the entire universe and any other universes out there possibly. And yet he cares enough to listen to us. On this little insignificant speck of a planet in the large universe, and then to listen to any one of us, which are just so insignificant upon this speck on this insignificant planet in the insignificant universe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how far you want to go, you know, in, in the insignificant galaxy of the Milky Way compared to the other bigger galaxies. It's amazing how everybody's asking for it. I mean, not just here, but all over the world, like, there's probably a million people praying at the same time. How can you decide? He's everywhere, so he, he's, yeah. he doesn't have that problem. That's, that's but he says, you've inclined your ear, therefore I will call upon your name. Because you will listen, I will call on your name, is what he's saying. And isn't that why we will call on his name? Because we do know that he listens and that he gives us the answers eventually, even if the answer is no. Have you ever said, heard somebody say, or maybe you've said it yourself, God doesn't answer prayers? The sad thing is, no is an answer. It's just not one we like. I was talking to the Lord and praying at the same time. He's terrible when I start talking. I dropped the in the downs. And I said, Father, you don't understand. You're so bad to see our children. Let sin take them away from us. Oh, boy, I didn't hear the word, Pastor. I felt him saying, my son was on the cross too, for your sins, man, your son's sins. And took all the sin upon himself. And how patient he is with, the, with the way he's, this world has been treating him. And how unpatient we are. But, well, see, that's just what I think about that oftentimes is if I was God and people treated me the way we treat him, including Christians, there wouldn't have been any hope for the world. And yet it shows how much God loves and cares for this world. And I'm pretty patient and loving in, in general, but... You know, I wouldn't put up with half of the stuff that goes on that God puts up with. And yet, we need to learn that patience. We need to learn that love with, for one another because it is what's going to show God's love to the world. Oh, I'm sure it hurts him. We know that it hurts him because eventually he's going to let, yeah. let the world have it. The wrath of God is going to be pretty bad. Uh, just, just the wrath we see in Revelation, not even all the other wrath that's out there. So... But we think about this. When God unleashes his wrath upon this world, a good two-thirds of the world is going to die yes. that we're told of. That we're told of. It is not going to be a good time when Satan rules this world for seven years. And he is still going to be on a leash even during those seven years. He's going to be on a leash. He can't do everything that he wants to do. God's going to give him a lot of freedom, but it's not going to be complete freedom. But more than he's got now. A lot more than he's got now. The church is the, is the restraining power right now because we won't let 
the church is speaking out against him and bringing to light what he does. Without the church, when the church is taken out, there won't be any restraining light. Then God's going to give him the freedom to do everything other than kill the entire world. Because if he had the chance, he would. He'd just kill everybody and take them all to hell with him immediately. So he's still going to have a restriction upon him during that period of time. He's going to have a lot of freedom. He's going to be able to inflict a lot of pain and a lot of terror. But he won't be able to destroy everybody. And so we've got a problem coming up. This world's got a problem coming up, you know. And then I've heard people, well, when, when I get to the seven years, I just won't take the mark and I'll be able no. Yeah, I don't think that that'll happen anyway. It's, you know, you're going to be lucky to live through that period of time. Because, out of, like I say, just from Revelation, when you look at it, two-thirds of the population is going to die. So what makes you think you're going to be part of that one-third in the first place that make it through to the end? And without taking the mark of beast, is going to be quite a accomplishment in and of itself because you're going to be hungry and uh, we you know people and it used to be that people couldn't understand how could the mark of the beast be that strong and how could you not be able to buy and sell and you know you'd always be and I always hear well you could always barter uh, no there's not going to be much bartering going on because they'll be able to track everything that's moved there's not going to be things but and now we know how how these things can happen the government's eliminating cash. If you try to take a large amount of cash out of your bank that's your money, the, it's reported to the government. It's an amazing thing to watch as God is moving in this world. Verse 3. The sorrows of, the, of death encompassed me, and the pains of hell got hold of me, and I found trouble and sorrow. Now, this is a little three-part thing that he puts in, but he's talking about getting into a pretty miserable place. The sorrows of death compassed me. And there are many people that get that place. I just would rather die. Things are so bad, I'd rather die. Job, Job's complaint. You know, God, you've made me so miserable. Just take me home. I'm tired of this. Uh, the pains of hell got hold of me. You know, basically he's saying everything, everything I'm doing is causing me pain. I, 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 and then he says, I found trouble and sorrow. <laughs> if death and hell weren't enough, he found trouble and sorrow beside me. So I, beside, you know, this is not a picture of a happy man at this point. <laughs> Yeah, like, which makes you kind of think this is a psalm of David, even though it doesn't say that it's a psalm of David, because this is the way David, David was. David was very high highs and very low lows. Uh, when everything was going good, everything was perfect. When everything's going bad, everything was miserable and terrible. No in-betweens, it seems like, for David. God, everything's miserable. I don't feel you. God, oh man, God, I'm on the top of, the, top of everything. Everything's going right. He never seemed to have this middle, middle ground. And then verse 4, then I called upon the name of the Lord, and I beseech you, deliver my soul. At least he knew what to do when he felt bad. When everything was going wrong, he knew to call on the name of the Lord. We need to be able to get to that place quickly. Call upon the name of the Lord. This is the greatest thing that we can have. And I, and I love being that I can just call upon his name when everything seems to be going wrong. God, I need your help. This, is, this has been a very rough trying week for me. All kinds of things have been going on, and I'm going, God, tell me what you want me to do. I know what I would be doing if it was all me, but you tell me, God, what you want me to do. Because this is a tough time. When God is, seems to be out of the picture, we just have to hold on to the last promise he gave us and just say, God, I'm going to just hold on. I'm going to walk in what you want me to do, but I'm going to just wait. The time to make big decisions are not when things are being all at the bottom of the barrel and you don't know what's going on. 
It's a terrible time to make a big decision in your life. God, everything seems to be going wrong. I'm moving to a new place. I'm running away from all of this and going to a new place where I can start all over. That's the world's way of doing it in many cases. It's a terrible place, God. Everything's going wrong. I'm going to go someplace else and start all over again. And those type of people will usually move every three to four or five years because they start having their problems catch up with them. And, and the next thing you know, everything's going wrong. It's time to move again. And I've talked about that. A lot of people are like that with the church. And everything's not right. People, people don't like me. I'm, they're getting under my skin. The pastor said something I didn't, didn't like him to say. You know, a couple people have gotten under my skin. I'm moving to a new place. Start all over. We tend to do this as human beings. We tend to run from problems instead of facing problems. And here David says, or whoever says, he goes, I know what to do. I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because he's already said, God, you hear me. You hear me when I call. We need to really recognize he hears us when, he call, when we call. And he will answer. He will answer when we call. Because he loves us. Now sometimes he'll let us wander in it to see what, we, what we're going to believe and how strong our trust is. Uh, there's a line in uh, God's Not Dead 2 that I loved. And, and uh, the main character who's in trial goes, I feel like my prayers aren't being answered. And her, and her father says, well, you're, you're a teacher. You should know that when you're in a test, the teacher doesn't speak. You know, when we're in the middle of the test with God, he's not going to speak. A test is not for, for, the, for the teacher to show what they know. It's for the student to show what they know. And God is saying, when you're in the middle of the test, I'm not speaking to you. When you get to the end of the test, then I can say, wrap my arms around you, say, wonderful job, or wrap my arms around you and say, this is what you should have done, or this was the answer. And I've done that as the proctor at the prison with people. They'll go, well, what's the answer to this question? I go, I can't tell you. But if I have a chance at the end of the class, I may tell them at the end of the class, you know, this is what the answer, this is what you should have written, or this is what the answer was. But because it's not a test of what I know, I could pass the test. It's not a problem to me. <laughs> and so, and this is what we've got to recognize. And so many times when we're walking with other Christians, sometimes we want to get them out of the mess they're in by giving them their answers in the middle of the test. The only problem is a twofold. Number one, when they're in the middle of the test, they're not usually going to listen to you. you know, because they just don't, it doesn't make sense when you give them their answer. And the other thing is, if they don't go through the test, they're not going to come out at the end with the experience of having gone through the test. They go through it again until they can do it on their own. Most of us like the idea of shortcutting the test. None of us like tests. You know, I, I remember in school, the last thing you wanted to hear the teacher say, pop, pop quiz or a pop test, you know, show me, show me what you didn't know from your homework. You didn't even like the announced test very much, but at least you had time to study for those ones. God's tests are always pop tests. You know, he just throws them at us without us knowing about it. And the question is, do we call upon him? Are we ready to say, you know, I called upon the name of the Lord. I beseech you, deliver my soul. Take me out of the problem. And God will take us out of the problem eventually. He'll let us go through it. He gives us the strength. He wants us to call upon him. And usually the key to the answer is to call upon him. Sometimes we're pretty dense. We don't call upon God very quickly in our problems. We usually will sit down and go, let me figure this out. Especially some of us that are very obnoxious and hard-headed. We'll go, God, I'm going to work my way out of this problem. Somehow I'm going to work my way out of this problem. I don't need you. And eventually we'll go, God, I need your help. 
And it is amazing when we call upon him how fast things work out. Somebody was sharing me just this other week, other day that, you know, God answered their, answered their prayers and all their problems just seemed to disappear within a matter of a couple hours. You know, everything that had been bothering them for weeks. <laughs> all of a sudden, bang, <laughs> it's all gone. I would think, well, I don't know what bothered me, it's just my little problem. I'll try to figure it out. And then I can't, okay, God, you have to figure out my problem. Because I figure, I don't want to bother my little thing. But... You're not, tell you what, you're not going to bother God. Anything you bring to him is not even a bother. And that, and that there's a story I heard on the uh, kids' radio the other day about a, a uh, father who told his son to move, move this pile of rocks, and his son came back after a while. He goes, well, I can't get these rocks moved. And he goes, well, have you tried everything again? Not yet. He goes, well, go back out and try to get them out. And he goes, well, God, I can't. And by the end of day, he goes, Father, I can't move all these rocks. And he goes, have you done everything that you possibly could do to get rid of these rocks? And he goes, yes. He goes, no, you didn't. He goes, you never asked me. <laughs> which is a perfect picture of how we treat God most of the time. God, I'm going to take care of this problem. You, I'm going to get rid of this problem. I'm going to get rid of this problem. I'm going to get rid of this problem. To, God, I just can't get rid of this problem. Just ask me, <laughs> and the problem would be gone. When we do that frequently with God, almost all the time, as a matter of fact, but you know, the kind of thing is we go to God. God, you will answer. And the sad thing is when we do go to him, we know he's going to answer, but you know, it's... You know, and the, the adage that you hear is, I've tried everything else, I might as well pray. And the adage should be, I want to go straight to prayer and then, that God, then God, God help me figure out what needs to be done. Sometimes in your heart, sometimes in my heart of hearts, I know the answer's going to be no. I hear the... <laughs> that could be true too. But, you know, and this is true, sometimes we have to soften our heart to want to do what he wants to do in the first place. Uh, otherwise, we will, because you know, we won't go to him, because we know it's not the right, and we know that no is going to be what it was, because we know it's not right. So we won't go to him, and we'll suffer not giving up what we're supposed to be giving up. Uh, this is something that has happened to me at various times in my life, where I just have something in my life that God's telling me to give out, and it's one of those things was football, because I used to be a fanatic about football. I'd watched all nine hours of, of football on Sunday, and I watched Monday night, and this was back before there was Thursday night football. I would have watched Thursday night football at that time. And God kept going, you know, you're wasting a lot of time. Was watching football a sin? Well, it was for me at that point because I was doing too much of it. But, but in general, no, it's not a sin. And God said, you're you need, ready to give it up. But I kept telling him no. And eventually I finally just said, yeah, I'm ready to give it up. I, you know, I want time with you. And this is the way God works most of the time. He'll keep asking us until we finally... Finally give in and say yes. Verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our Lord is merciful. You know, I love this. Gracious. God bends his ear to hear our, our problems. He is righteous and he is merciful. You know, just the whole graciousness of God. That he will listen to all of us balls of dirt <laughs> and bow down to listen to us. And pay attention. Mine says, the Lord is gracious and righteousness. Our God is full of compassion. Uh, merciful in this particular case is compassionate. Not, not always, but in this case it is. Compassion is a good, def good uh, translation on it. But God listens to us. And this is kind of when he links it with righteousness. And God is righteous. It makes it even more amazing that he listens to us. Because of how unrighteous we usually are. You know, and how much judgment should come our way, and yet he gives us mercy and compassion. God's great mercy. 
doesn't give us what we deserve. <laughs> you know, it's an amazing thought when you really think about the love that God has for us. That he poured out all of his anger on his son so that he can be merciful to us. My whole life is a testament to God's mercy. All of us really are. All of our lives are, are, you know, even those who get saved at a young age and don't go into great, what people consider great sins, God is still merciful to those people because if they really saw their sin the way it, it should be seen, they would know how evil it is. You know, people who have done, gone into pretty deep sins, they understand how merciful God is in a, in a very deep way, and it's very personal to them. When they've gotten into drugs and alcohol and theft and murder or whatever, whatever things that they've gotten into. I that bad. You don't have to get quite that bad, but you can still you get to a place where you understand. But some people who are growing up in church all their life and never go into those bad sins, sometimes they have a problem understanding that they're a sinner in need of grace. Even if, I mean, I'm not saying they weren't, aren't saved, but they tend to get very judgmental about people who go deep into sin because it's like, well, how could you do that? Yeah. And then they end up in the sins of self-righteousness and all these other things because they don't recognize that their sin is just as bad as all those other sins. Because we as humans have our sins graded, you know, and we all know that, you know, you've got the little white lies, you've got the, the really big lies, you've got, you know, those are not as bad as theft and theft's not as bad as murder and murder, you know, and you keep going up this, this line of uh, sins and that's how we think. This is why you get people saying, well, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done that. I haven't done anything really bad. And usually bad is relative. Whatever, wherever you are on that scale of bad, you haven't done whatever's above it. <laughs> I lie and steal, but I haven't murdered people. So I'm not a really bad person. Okay? And that's how they get away with this comparison. Everybody out there believes that they are above average. And it's kind of an amazing thing. There have been studies done in in like colleges and they go, okay, you know, tell us how good a student are you? Are you below average, average, above average, uh, or better than all? And every student or the majority of the students will say I'm above average, which is pretty amazing that almost 100% of your students are above average, uh, which means they're all average. Uh, and those who are usually superior will usually say they're average or below average, and it's kind of an amazing thought. The better you are at something, the lower you will usually place yourself as being able to get it done. And the weaker you are, usually the higher you are will place yourself in your, in your knowledge. And, it's kind of, and I've noticed this even in the work world. Those who are incompetent will always know everything and tell you they're the best thing that ever hit that job. And you're going, and you just watch them and they're, they're total incompetence. And usually the most competence will be ones that just, you know, I'm just going to do my job and and I feel like I just do my job. But everybody knows that they're the one that <laughs> gets it done right. And they do too, but they just don't want to make it sound, you know, they don't want to be vain. Or, as I said, my definition for an expert is somebody who begins to know what they don't know. So the person who's really good knows that they don't know everything and there's a lot more to learn. So they really don't think they're at the top of the pile because they know they've got so much more to learn. And so they'll place themselves as average and work and look to be work, you know, lifted up because they know that there's more for them to learn. And that's kind of how I've always looked at it. You know, I know that in most cases I was above average, but I also said I've got so much more to learn that compared to the people I'm comparing myself to, I'm 
I'm average. I'm not, I'm not there. And so we want to be able to say, you know, God is gracious. He's gracious on all of us people who don't want to look and say that we need him. And it's so easy for us to say, I don't need, I don't need you or I don't, I don't want to bother you because you've got so many more, more important things to do, more important people to take care of. And there's a problem with that particular place too. So, and it says that in verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. The simple. Literally means naive, easily, easily tricked, easily deceived. God preserves them. He protects them. And this is something that is, you know, one of the things sometimes when you're following God, you can end up being kind of, of uh, naive toward the ways of the world, especially if you grow up that, in that way. Uh, I remember when I first started managing, my boss told me I was, uh, what was the right term that he used? Uh, I was too honest. And I'm going, what do you mean? He goes, you don't, even, you don't even know how people can steal from you because you are never considered that world. I hate that I had to learn how people could steal from me to protect my business, but, but it, it made me very cynical toward people because I found out that most people weren't honest. And it's really a sad place when you come up to it and find out that most people are not honest. And it's uh, changed the way I think. I'm having, having to revert back to God. I'm going to accept people as being honest until they prove to me that they're not. But as a businessman, I assumed that everybody was dishonest because so many had been dishonest in their dealings with me that I had to start with they're dishonest until they prove themselves to be honest. And as a Christian, I want to work the other way around. I'm going to accept that you're, I know that you're probably not honest, but I'm going to treat you as you're honest until you show me that you're not. Now, does that mean I'm going to hand over the keys to the church to everybody out there because I'm going to trust them? No. It just means I want to trust people until they prove to me that they're not, they're not trustworthy. And I've been around long enough that I pretty quickly know whether somebody's trustworthy or not. I'm not the naive person I used to be in the old days. I can usually tell very quickly. But God preserves. God preserves the simple. He even tells us that he protects the orphans. He protects the children. He protects the widows. Those who have trouble being able to take care of themselves, God is their protection. And if you take advantage of those individuals, you're going to face God. And even in the prison system, if you, if you do something to a child, you're in trouble if people find out that you hurt a child and you're in prison. If you hurt a woman, you're not quite as much in trouble as a child, but you are still you know, look down at, you know, well, you didn't, you didn't take on an, a man. What kind of person are you? <laughs> and uh, there's a whole system of justice in there for them when you go, when you hurt a child or a woman as opposed to hurting men. And uh, basically God's saying, I protect. I protect the weak. And the system, even though it's the world system, is very much in line with what God does. He protects the weak. And he says, I will protect the, them. Verse 7, return unto your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Have you ever been in an unrestful place? Yeah. God has given us faith rest. When we become a Christian, we can rest in him. Does that mean our life will be perfect with no problems? No. But if we're resting in him, 
everything is at least God, okay, God, I feel the storm, but it's, it's hitting you. You're the one taking the brunt of the storm. This is what we've talked to many times in Psalms. He is our defender. He is our shield. He is our buckler. He is our fortress. Are we aware of the storm when we're inside the, the building? Yes, you're, in, you're inside the building. You hear the storm. You, you might even feel the shaking of your building if it's a really strong storm, especially around here where we all have tra so many trailers and, and, uh, and everything. You feel and hear the storm really well. But you're inside. So you are aware of the storm, but not necessarily feeling it. If we are resting in Christ, resting in God, we hear the storm. We see the effects of the storm, but we don't feel the storm. We may know that we're in the middle of a storm, but God is our rest. The more we rest in him, the more peaceful our life will be. We may have to go through something like Job went through, where everything is taken away. But Job, if you really think about what Job said in most cases, he understood the love of God, even though he wasn't happy with what was going on. What did he tell his wife when everything was disappeared, had disappeared? She said, curse God and die. And he goes, naked we came, I came into this world, naked I will leave. You know, can't we accept the good from, and the bad from, from God? Now Job's wife gets a pretty bad rap, but you know, I can picture that she loved him so much that she's looking at her husband in great pain and saying, Job, why don't you just curse God and get it all over with? Don't live in pain anymore. I think, I really think her, her motivation was love to him. God, uh, she was seeing how hurt he was and it hurt her. And God, why don't you just let God, you know, curse God and let him kill you and get it over with. I, you know, and that could be totally wrong on this, but I think he pro she probably loved him enough that that was what she, her motivation was on that. And that's speculation, of course, you know, but, but I can picture that, you know, you just love somebody so much that you're willing to give your own life for them, or if you could take the pain in their place, you would take the pain in their place. I believe that was her motivation in that case. I don't think she was just being mean to him. I, be, I believe it was a total compassionate heart from her. Like, you know, you're, you're going through so much. God has taken everything away from you. Why don't you just give up on God and, and just let him take your life? Now, she didn't have an, a picture of eternity, but, <laughs> you know, in, in that statement. But, but God says, return or the psalmist says, return to your rest, O my soul. Return to your rest. Return to God. When you're in the middle of your trials, when everything is going wrong, turn to God and rest in him. Is it easy to do when you're in the middle of the trial? Not always. You know, sometimes you're in so much pain in the middle of the trial that just resting in him is very hard to do. But eventually, you need to get to the place where you say, God, I don't have the answers. I don't know what's going on. Doesn't, sometimes it doesn't make the answers all, all of a sudden magically pop up, but it does put you in rest. I've put most of the problems that I'm facing into God's hands and saying, God, I need you to direct, but I'm not making a decision while I'm in the middle of all this chaos in my, in my mind, in my emotions, and my thoughts. God, I'm going to continue staying in the course until you make it clear to me what I'm supposed to do. Have all my answers been come yet? Nope, not all my answers have come yet. But I'm more at peace because they're in God's hands, and I know that he will tell me what's going to happen here soon. How, when, I don't know. But going through different things and watching what God is going to do will be exciting. Learn to just rest. He has dealt, dealt well with us. Verse 8 says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from t tears, and my feet from falling. 
And this goes back to the beginning where he's got the sorrows of death encompassing him, the pains of hell, and, he's, and he found all kinds of, of trouble and sorrow. And now he says, God, you've delivered me from all of these things. I have returned into your rest, and you've delivered me. You have delivered me from all these problems that have been pressing down upon me. Hopefully you have been there where you just turn things over to God and you watch him work out the problems. It's, it is a fun place to be at. God, all my problems are pounding in on me. I'm going to turn them all over to you and you just sit back and you watch God. You know, all of our problems piled onto God, don't, he doesn't even notice them. It, it feels like a ton weight on us and on God, it's like putting feathers on him. And he goes, I don't even, don't even know I have anything here. And he works it all out. Yeah, when you first said it to me over the doctor floor, it was hard to say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not opening my mouth. I'm going to let God be my defense. And they just work. So the second time I did it, I prayed to God. I don't know what to do. I don't want to offend a spirit or soul. Be my defense and everything within a week. Bam, everything happened. And I'm standing there crying on the front porch. But at times, even when we ask him to be our defense, we ask him to handle the problem, we ask him to help me handle it, we aren't satisfied no matter what he does. Well, I like to think of my, the preconceived, the stuff on the plan that I've already set out in my mind for the way it should work. That God's not doing it the way I think it should be done. That's just it. We, we, we hand it over to God and we still expect him to do it our, the way that we wanted to do it instead of solving it his way. But also, as I've been saying every time, and you may have a great picture of this. The first one was really easy. You just turned it over to him and immediately everything seemed to be fixed. The second time took a little longer because he's saying... Are you going to trust me to be the one that fixes it? Are you really going to keep it in my hands? Yes, you passed that one. Next time, a little longer. Are you really going to let it, you know, and this is what I've gone, I've gone through a week of saying, God, it's yours, and having to not keep grabbing it back. And we, and we do this often. We keep grabbing it back, and God's saying, no, you're, you're not at the kindergarten level where I just answered you immediately. You're now at the sixth grade level where I'm going to say, will you leave it in my hands? Will you truly leave it in my hands? And just using this example, you know, it is the same for everything we go through. When we're in kindergarten, God answers in in instantly, and it seems really easy. When you get to sixth grade, high school, college, it gets a lot harder to turn those over for him to fix the problems. My kids were dropouts. He doesn't have dropouts, so. Oh, <laughs> he just keeps giving you the same problem until you finally pass it. Did you understand what I'm saying? The point is, as you learn things, the next test is going to be the same test in one, in one sense, but it's going to be a different answer because he's going to say, are you really going to believe that I'm going to answer, that I am your rest? Are you willing to rest in me even when it doesn't look like I'm delivering you from the problem instantly the way you wanted it? Are you willing to sit and rest in me? Maybe you get far enough in advance on this that you have to rest in him for a month or two and watch the problems that have been handed over to him. You know, we never know. And because God is saying, I want to know, do you fully trust me to be who I say I am? I am your defender. Are you willing to put it up? The bullets are flying. You're hearing them. Are you going to try to respond or are you going to just rest? 
And this is true in everything that we deal with. But are we supposed to just sit there and not do nothing at all? That depends on what God tells you to do. Sometimes it is do nothing. Oh, so I'm always thinking I need to be doing something. You don't always have to do something. Now, that doesn't mean that if God gives you the opportunity to do something that you don't take advantage of it. There are times when you do something. As a pastor, I don't just sit back and say, well, God, you teach all my people the messages they need to hear. He gives me a message, and I have to deliver that message, even though people may not want to hear that message. When I'm dealing with my kids, there's times when I have to give them a message from God that, that I feel they need to hear, and there's times when it's time to be silent about the message because they've heard it enough times. The hard part is knowing which to do and when to do it. That's walking by faith. There's times when you sit back and say, okay, God, this is, I'm putting this into your hands, and God says, okay, now it's time for you to move. Go buy the parts and get, you know, and get the car fixed or take it to the shop and get the car fixed. There's times when he says, just sit back, and he sends you somebody to, to get the vehicle fixed. You, and this is the problem with walking in the spirit. There's no hardcore answer for anything you're going to go through. There's times when you take care of the problem yourself, but, you, but the first step is always turn it over to God, and then, God, what do you want me to do? And there comes that point sometimes when you have to take it by the bull by the horn and do something yourself. But make sure it's what God wants you to do. There may be a time, for, like I said this morning, for changing churches. God, God says it's just time to move to another church. That should be a very long, thought-out process. What I have told everybody, I want to do things when I am in a calm place, not when all chaos is going around. I am not going to move when, when I'm in the middle of chaos because that's not the time to move. I'm running from problems at that time. It's not the time to leave a church just because I think everything's going wrong with the way people are dealing with me. I need to get through that period of time, and then when it's nice and peaceful, God, am I supposed to move on? You know, and this is what most of the time as humans in the middle of the chaos, we say, that's it, God, that's your sign I'm supposed to leave. And we run from the problem. And not necessarily run from wherever, but we run from the problem and go someplace. You know, sometimes it's physical, you know, changing a place. Sometimes it's our, uh, changing of our church, whatever it might be. But when we're in the middle of the problem, that is not the time to make a major decision. That is a time to just rest in God until the problem is dealt with, and then you go to God, okay, God, was that a sign that I need to think about moving my physical location, changing my church, changing my job, whatever, whatever it might be? And in the middle of the problem is not the time to make heavy decisions. All right, verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore, have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. In my haste, I said, all men are liars. <laughs> You know, I love this. He delivered him, and then he walked in the, walked in the, in the Lord, in the, in the land of the living. For us as Christians, we walk in a life that sometimes drives the world crazy because they see the joy on our face. They see us walking through hard times, and they don't understand how we can still smile, how everything seems to be going okay for us. They think sometimes we're all phonies, and some people are phonies. They just paste the file. But you know, it, it is amazing for, for you. When God is in control, how easy it is to just be at peace. Paul said, I've learned to be content with much or with little. He learned literally to be content with God no matter what. Whether he was suffering, whether he was being blessed, whether he had much money, whether he had no money, whether he was in jail. And I love the story of the Philippian jail. Midnight, after being beaten, scourged, 
in a stinking dungeon with rats and lice and fleas, and they're praising God and singing songs at midnight. And can you imagine the other, the other prisoners? Would you guys just shut up? How can you be praising this God in the middle of the night? You know, probably being cursed at. And then all of a sudden there's an earthquake. So bad that it shakes the, shakes the, the bonds and chains off of them and opens the doors. Now, I don't know how, the, you know, that was a miracle to have the chains taken off. But, and the jailer's ready to kill himself. And Paul says, no, we're all here. We're all here in the prison. And the jailer gets saved and all that stuff that goes along with it. But the middle of the night, how many of us in the middle of the night, after having been beaten and thrown into some situation like that, would be singing songs of praise to God? Not many of us would probably be doing that. And yet, that was Paul's life. He loved God so much that he was willing to say, Basically, he's saying, God, thank you that I was worthy of suffering for you. Especially in our Western European Christianity we have, we don't see suffering for God, Christ as a blessing. We see it as a curse. You know, our, our, our doctrine says, you know, if you're not doing good, something's wrong with your Christianity. And Paul was saying, thank you, God, I'm worthy of suffering for you. You know, I'm living a life that make, puts me in line with you and they're, they're going to make me suffer because of you. It's coming. We need to be ready for it. It's coming that we're going to have to suffer for him sooner than we probably anticipate. And there's going to be a time when we're going to have to go through much for him. And our country's been spared in many years because we started out with religious freedom and all of this. But our country's changing. Our country's changing really fast that Christians are being persecuted, not yet to death, not yet to losing jobs for the most part, but it's changing. And the world is changing. And we're going to be facing this. Are we ready? Are we ready to say, God, I am blessed even when I'm, even when I'm, being, when I'm suffering? And here he says, and then it goes, he believed, I believe, therefore I have spoken. I was greatly afflicted. This is what I was saying this morning about evangelism. Do I truly believe that God is the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. Do I believe it so much that I'm willing to share that message with other people or am I willing to say, well, you can just go to hell because I don't think it's important enough to tell, talk to you about. Here he says, I believe, therefore I have spoken. If we truly believe, we will be outrageously bold in our gospel message because the alternative is hell. It really is. And we do not want to be guilty of the blood of anybody. Paul said at the end of his life, I am guilty of no man's blood. I have shared the gospel. Now, I think that was a little bit of hyperbole. I don't believe he shared it with every single person, but he, he was an evangelist. He shared with lots of people. I know, unfortunately, that I have not shared with everybody that I should, share, should have shared with. I know that. And that scares me. It does scare me. I have shared my faith with a lot of people but not necessarily everybody I've had the opportunity. Usually I'm very slow-witted. I think about the fact that I should have talked to them hours after I get done walking away from them. But we need to develop the heart for the lost that opens our mouth quickly. And you know the good news is the more you share and the more you see people respond, the more you get excited about sharing. It really is. 
I'm always nervous when I go do street evangelism. Those first couple of people are hard to get out of the way, but after you've done it a couple of times and you get back into it and you watch some people respond, it gets to be fun to do. Yeah. It doesn't get any easier necessarily, but it's like, wow, look at this. This guy, this guy actually listened. A seed was planted. Or even better yet, this guy actually asked Christ into his heart. Yeah. And that really gets exciting. Learn to just get excited about those things. It'll drive us to be able to share and I'm going to tell you right now, the, the share with friends and, and family are the hardest ones. Family are very hard because they don't usually listen. Friends are hard because you don't want to lose your friends. Um, it's harder for me to understand friends because I will share with my friends. Most of my friends are Christians now, but I've always shared with my friends the gospel message because I don't want to see them go to hell. My family, I've shared with my family over the years, you know, at various times, you know, there's not a, nobody in my family that I can think of that hasn't heard the gospel message, several times in most cases. But we see that we've got to share. Jesus was not accepted by his family until after his death. They did not believe who he was. His family is going to be the hardest to witness to always. Friends are hard just because we don't, we don't want to offend our friends. You know, we don't want to lose a friend because telling them that, that if they don't accept Jesus, they're going to hell is a pretty tough message. It can be done in love. It can be done in kindness. But it's still a tough message, especially if they reject it. They may not want to see you come around again. But you know, the last thing you want to do is stand at the white throne judgment and watch them go to hell because you didn't share the gospel. And at that time, I can picture them pointing to you, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me about this? And we need to be careful about this. He says, I believe, therefore I spoke. In my haste, I said, all men are liars. And this is kind of an interesting thing that people have. You know, how many times do we really kind of look around and say, everybody lies, nobody tells the truth. When we are down, we look very negatively at everything. And this is why I say that it's not, when you are, in the middle of suffering, that's not the time to make a major decision because in that point, everything's wrong. Every good advice is wrong. Every, every doctrine of God is wrong. Everything you've ever learned is wrong and you're just making the wrong decisions. Which is why, you know, for our memory verse this month, I picked uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 because it is such a critical verse that we trust in the Lord and lean not into our own understanding. You know, we need to be looking at that always always trusting in the Lord and putting it in his place because it says he will direct our paths if we just trust in him and quit leaning on our own thoughts. Verse 12 says, What shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? How many blessings you've received from God? How could you ever give God enough back to him for all our benefits. The greatest benefit, going to heaven. What could we give him to, make, to pay for going to heaven? That's one of the reasons, things, when I hear somebody says, well, I hope I'm good enough to, to get into heaven, I'm going, you don't have a clue what you're saying. The benefits of heaven are so great, so majestic, you cannot buy just the benefit of heaven. And think of all the other benefits we get. Peace, joy, a calmness in this walk, in this world. Health. Guidance, health, you know, or at least guidance through your sickness where you say, God, there's greater, greater in store for me later. The power of all the benefits. 
And I've heard it said, and I agree, if there is no heaven, and this is speculative, I do not feel I have lost anything in this world because of the blessings that God has given me in this world. But because of the blessings he's given me in this world, I know there's a heaven to come. And I've just gotten the down payment. But even if I just had the down payment, and there is nothing after, after this world, I have lost nothing. Compared to the world who is never happy with anything they have and have hell to look forward to. They weren't happy in this world and they won't be happy in the afterlife because everything that, everything that they could have been happy with will be stripped from them. And this is what is true. For us as Christians, this world is as close to hell as we'll ever come and experience. And it's not hell. And I don't even think of it, it that way even to me because of God's blessings. I am so pleased with his blessings and how he gives me great blessing. But you know, for the person headed for hell, this is as much heaven as they'll ever see. And that's sad to think of because this world isn't anything like heaven. But this will, they'll be looking back at heaven just as a rich man in in the story of the rich man in Lazarus, looked up and said, just a little drop of water, just a little drop of water. I really have messed up. I, I want to go back to the world. <laughs> you know, send somebody back to the world to warn my brothers not to come here. He got very compassionate about, very compassionate about give the gospel out, get, the, get them to listen, because he experienced what was out there. And he says, I will take the cup of salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the result of doing all of this, he says in verse 13, I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Vows before the Lord were very important. If you made a vow before the Lord, God says you will pay your vow. If, if you said, I will give something to him, you give it to him. Uh, people who make promises to God in the middle of their, their pain and suffering, God, if you just get me out of this, I'll do. And they get out of it and they don't do it. They are in serious problems because you can't bargain with God, but when he delivers you, you better pay your vow. God, I will do such and such. God, I will give you more money. You know, I will do this. I will serve you. I will go to church. I hear that a lot from people. I'll start going to church. And then they get whatever, through whatever it is, and they don't come to church. And it's like, okay, you're standing before God. When he, God says, why didn't you do it? You're going to have to explain to him why you didn't do it. Why you didn't give him the money you said you were going to give him. Why you didn't give him the obedience you said you were going to give him. All of this is very serious. God expects us to fulfill our vows. And what, what is so good is when you're a Christian and you really do put a vow out and it's easy for me. I mean, I've thought that thought of it because it's very, very easy. And they were too big vowed and I'm going to do it until the day I die. Yeah. And so. In verse 15 is one of my verses I quote a lot. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious means highly valued. They come home. And this is one to me that I look at, I'm going, yes, we're going to miss those saints in the church that have died. We're going to miss them. We're, we're going you know, to miss seeing their presence. But you know, they've traded this miserable world that they were living in happily with God for the best situation they possibly could have. If somebody is saved and they die, it is, should be a wonderful thing. This is why I like the term homegoing instead of memorial or, or a funeral. They went home before us. They went home before us. They are enjoying heaven. 
And when I hear people go, well, so-and-so is you know, looking down and I know that they're talking about a Christian, I'm thinking, I don't think they care anything about this world. They are so focused on Jesus and what's going on in heaven that they're not, you know, and I know that doesn't make people feel really happy that they're not really concerned about their loved ones, but they are enjoying heaven. And I can picture that Jesus has to say, you need to go to the gates, your, 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 your son or daughter's coming, coming today. Uh, but I've also had this picture of time in heaven is different than our time. Yeah, I have the kind of picture that, you know, 60 years in heaven, you know, com- you know, down here might just be three or four minutes in heaven. You end up in heaven, and the next thing you know, your kids are right there with you, like, what are you doing here? Well, it's been 60 years since you went up here. No, I just got here. I almost ha- I have a picture that it might be something as simple as that. It solves all the soul sleep qu- questions that people have. Well, what about this long time period? I have a feeling there is no time period in heaven that the time period in heaven is so different than our time period that we'll all appear in heaven at about the same time. Adam and Eve showed up and everybody, everybody since then has only been there, popped up about an hour later. You know, and I know that you know, it's hard to fathom, but that's how I kind of picture it. The time's different in heaven. Yeah, there's a little bit of gap, but not this huge thousands of years. And I, that's, again, my speculation. It's you know, how I see science and relativity and all of that stuff, but it could very well be true. I think what is cool, nobody knows. Nobody knows anything. It's just cool. So no matter what anybody says, they do not know. Yeah. We don't know anything about heaven because we're not there. And then he says again in verse 15, precious, uh, verse 16, O Lord, I am your servant, I am your servant, and the son of your handmaid, you have loosed my bonds. Have you ever thought about how much God has loosed your bonds? Do you remember back when you were saved and you were bound up in the chains of, sla- of sin and you got saved and the entire weight of your sin was taken off of you and the chains that had you locked up were snapped and you had victory over sin? And then we spend the rest of our life trying to get bound up by these sins again. And God's saying, I want to just loose these sins. I just want to loose you from these in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian climbs up Mount Calvary and comes to the cross. He's been trying to get the weight of sin off of his back, and he can't do it. Nobody could undo it. And he stands before the cross, and the sins fall off of his back, roll down the hill into the tomb, and, are, and he walks away light and free. When we get saved, that is really the way it is. And you hear that from many people. They say, I got saved and I got everything just came off my, all the burdens of my sins fell off of me. And I know that I was saved. The most important thing is that we know that we know that we know that we're saved because our sins have been pulled off our back and we are in a relationship with God. There should be no question that we're saved. If you have a question that you're saved, you need to get back and say, God, am I saved and do I know you? Are you a personal in my life? If you have a point in time when you know that your sins were released and you were in a personal relationship with God, then you know that you're saved. And you need to go back to that point when you feel miserable and down and out, you know, out, out of sorts. And so I've talked about this. We need to put these points in our life where we say, God, this is where I've seen you work. This is where you've done this. This is where you've done this. Because when we are down in the dumps and everything looks like I've never known God and he's totally, totally left me and there's no hope, I can go back and say, no, I got saved on this day, and he did this for me on this day, and he did this for me on this day, and he did this for me on this day. God, I'm tired of living in this depression. Get me out of it, and he'll lift us out. Very important that we keep this in mind. 
Because when you're in the middle of that despair, it is easy to despair totally. When we're down, it is very easy to forget that anything ever good has ever happened. And anybody who's had depression or despair to that extreme knows exactly what I'm saying. Even when you first get hit by it, if you allow it to, you can forget all the good that's ever happened to you and you just wallow in the misery that nothing good has ever happened. Nothing good has ever happened. This is wrong, this is wrong, and then everything starts looking wrong. And God is saying, no, I have done great things for you. I have released you from your sin and you have the lightness of your sin and I have given you grace and I have given you great blessings. But when we're in that middle of that fallen place, we don't see those. When we're in the middle of the pit and it's dark all around us, we need to keep that little hopes of light. And this is why if you have problems with depression and, and, and despair, start a book, start a notebook, start a page on a computer, whatever it might be. This is what God did for me this day, this day, this day, this day. Start recording the good things he's done for you. And when you're in the middle of that pit, open up that book and remind yourself of all the good that God has done for you. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it but it's an important thing. And it builds your faith to be able to do this and say, God, you have answered my prayers. You have, this is the day that you saved me. And I know you saved me because you lifted my sins off of me of that day. I may feel weight right now, but you did it. And I know that you did it. There should never be this time. If you are saved, you should have these recognitions. Yes, you may have trouble sometimes. Because you're down in the middle of the pit. God's letting you go through a Job experience where things have been taken away from you. But that's when you grab even harder to that, that anchor. And I've shared with you, my anchor is very simple. When everything seems to be going wrong, I go, God, I don't understand this, but you promise that everything will work together for good, and I'm going to hold on to that rope. Uh, poster one time, when you, when you get down to the end uh, of the rope, tie a knot on the bottom of it. You know, and that's my knot at the bottom of the rope. God, you have promised that all things will work together for good, and I'm holding on for dear life at that bottom of that rope, saying, God, I don't understand it. I don't know why, but I'm going to hold on to this promise. And then the flip side of that is God is sovereign. He knows what's going on. Between those two things, if you can hold on to those two things, at least for me, it is my hope when everything seems dark. God, you've promised it's going to be for good, and God, you are sovereign. You know what's going on. I may not know what's going on. God, you are under no obligation. Tell me what's going on. And that's something we have to get in our mind. God is under no obligation to tell us what he's doing. He's... he's king of this world. He's the master of the universe. He is under no obligation to tell us anything. He can do what he wants and we are to accept it because he is the sovereign. The good news is at the end he usually shows us what he's done. Not always but usually. When Job got to the end God said here I'm giving you everything back now you pray for your, your, your counselors, your, your comforters. <laughs> You pray for them, or I'm going to judge them. You pray for them, and you comfort them. You teach them. I'm going to give you back twice of everything that you had. And he got back twice of everything that he had. He even got the same number of kids back. And when he got to heaven, he had twice as many kids as he had to start with. So he had twice of everything. And God says, here, here's your blessing. You went through a very hard time, and here's your blessing for doing that. 
when we go through the darkest places in our life and we hold on to God, there will be great blessings at the end of it. This is, we, I keep telling you, we, I want, I'm running to encourage people to read biographies. Well, we have the biographies in. I'm getting a list put together of what we have. But I encourage you, read some of these biographies. See what happens when these people get into the darkest point of their life and they hold on to God and the blessings that God brings into their life. And then start looking at your own life and think about when was a dark place in my life and I held on to God and what reward was there? How did he use this? It is an amazing thing when you hold on to God. I've shared with you all that five years ago when Lynn and I went down to Tucson and our car broke down. It was amazing to me that all the people were more worried about how I was going to get home than I was. And I'm talking about all the missionaries and leaders and everybody else who were, were down there leading this event. How are you going to get home? How are you going to get home? I go, I don't know. I've got three days for God to figure it out. And I wasn't trying to be hyper-spiritual or anything. It was just, I'm here for this event. My car doesn't work. I'm stuck where I'm at at the moment. But God will figure out how to make everything work out. And he did. We got our car back to, back to Kingman. It took just a quick call. We had to wait two hours. Uh, four hours for the vehicle to get down, down there to pick us up. But, it, you know, I just was at peace, and God said, call this person, and we called them, and they came and helped us. And they wouldn't even let us give, money, give them money for gas. You know, uh, you know, but it was one of those things. Was I trying to be super spiritually? No, I was just, God, I'm here. I'm going to enjoy this. I don't know why you let me go. And I told people, I go, I don't know why God let this happen, but it's his problem, and he's going to fix it. And show people that you have peace. And it you're could be. And it is a lot of that. And a lot of times it is an example to people. How can you be so peaceful in the middle of all this thing? Because I've learned to be content with much or with little. This is God's problem. What, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to me? We catch a bus back home and my car gets, I arrange for my car to be sold down here. You know, it's, you know, I wasn't overly concerned with how I was going to get home. One of those guys would have taken me home if it came down to it. I just didn't know what I would do with my car. You know, so, and I don't say this to, to lift myself up. I'm just saying using it as an example. It was an example to all of them. You know, this pastor is very much at peace when, when this is something that's pretty serious. His car is 600 miles from home. How, you know, what, what, what's going to happen? Well, not 600, 300 and some miles away from home. <laughs> uh, that's your faith. The thing that we do is we live out what we teach. I want God to be my defense, and usually I let him be my defender. Am I perfect in all these things? Have I always been perfect in not wondering about how things? No, I've not always been perfect, and anybody who knows me knows that I'm not perfect in all, all these things, but they know that I, in general, am very faithful to this, that God is my defender, and that God is, God is in control, and I know that he's in control. My encouragement for us is keep working at it. Now, I realize I've got 40 years of experience letting God be in control. I'm ahead of most people, yes. I, for somebody in their 50s, I got saved young, and I got really... All right, let's take the last two verses. I've gone over, so let's take the last two verses. Verse 17. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the, con unto the Lord now in the presence of all the people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise you the Lord. I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. God, you are... Who I'm going to be thankful to. How can I offer a sacrifice of 
Everything's going in your, you're wrong in your life. God, thank you for allowing me to suffer for you. Is that not sacrifice of thanksgiving? Our natural inclination of God, why did you let this all happen to me? This is miserable and terrible. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In all things give thanks. Even when it seems like it's bad and terrible, we give thanks. It's pretty, it's pretty easy to give thanks when everything's going good. Okay, God, thank you all. Oh, wonderful. Uh, God, what are you letting this into my life for? It's much harder to give thanks when it's, God, I'm feeling in pain. I've been, I've been beat up. My back has been, been stripped of the flesh with the flagellum, and I'm going to give you thanks. I'm going to sing praises to you in the middle of this dark Philippian jail in the middle of the night when I'm in pain, and I'm probably going to have infection in these wounds because of the, the fleas and the rats that are going to, to be in my wounds in the middle of the night if I fall asleep. And yet I'm going to praise you and sing praises to you. And that's a good starting place where you really want to get to is where you're praising him just because... Well, not even just that, just because, God, you are in control. Yeah. Because, yes, it's because e- that's even, you know, God, at least I have an arm to get hurt. I have a foot to get hurt. I have this, I have this stuff to be taken away from me. I don't mean to do it, just that. Yeah. No, it's a good starting place. But it is, as I normally say, it's kind of like the kindergarten level. God, I'm, I'm praising you that I have something to be hurt. Uh, the ultimate is, God, I just praise you. I praise you in that you have a plan for this hurt. A reason for everything. And the ultimate is just to be able to say, God, I don't understand it, but you're in control and watch what he does. It is so much fun to watch what God does. And this is what I've learned over time. Whenever something bad happens and I'm saying, God, it's into your control. And I just sit back and I watch how he does. Now, going back to that car example, I'm the one that ended up solving it at the end of the, end of the thing because I made a phone call. But I'm sure it was God who put it on my heart to make that phone call to the person that I knew that had a flatbed trailer to get my car back home. But I was all set to just get on a bus or have one of the missionaries take us home and, and do without my car for however long it was going to take to get around to getting it. But that was, I was at peace, giving God thanks for whatever, whatever he had in plan. This is where you hit the top is when, God, I don't understand it, but I'm just going to, and this goes back to our question of, when do you make a decision to do something? At the end of the weekend, it was like, okay, you know, I know somebody with a flatbed. And then, you know, just all of a sudden popped in my head. I know somebody with a flatbed trailer. Let me call them and offer them to pay them to come down from Kingman to Tucson, pick up our car and dra- you know, drag us back. And they said, yes, sure. And they came down. And they, you know, but it was one of those things. I wasn't worried about it. I wasn't worried. And all of a sudden, this, like, this light bulb pops up into my head. And I'm sure it was God. Call so-and-so. So yes, there's that point where you do something, but it's not because I'm stretching my imagination on what is the last possible thing I but can it's do. It's amazing you think of that, you know, but there's times that I do that same thing. Like, wow, God put that in my head because I wasn't going to do it. And there are those times when you get to that place where it's now time for you to do something. Yeah. But it shouldn't be the first thing that pops into your mind necessarily. You're going to be at peace. If you're in the middle of all the chaos and you're trying to do everything, that's not what you do. You lay back in peace and you go, God, what do, what do you want me to do? And he'll give you the answer or present the answer, whichever it might be. And it may be, and I've shared with this, when I was living on faith with, with no money, I go, God, here's your bills. And I've told you that. You know, I'd pay the bills we could and I'd go, God, here's your bills. And the next thing I know, he'd send me a computer job. I had to do a lot of work. <laughs> A lot of times 
to get the money to pay the bills that I had turned over to God, but he presented those. Now, if I said, no, those, gods, those are God's bills, you know, and, and turned down those jobs, they wouldn't have gotten paid because God's provision was to step up and do something. But I also wasn't sitting there striving, okay, I've got to call everybody, I've got, got to start advertising for, for work. It was God providing the opportunities. And that's when, it's, that's when you know where you're at. That there is a time for us to step forward and do something. But don't do it out of desperation and say, well, I've just got to do this because. And then he says he will pay his vows. And we've read this before. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, Jerusalem. He paid his vows and he did it where people knew that he was being honorable to God. He goes, he went to the courts and paid his vows. And there are people who say, well, you can't let God, anybody know what's going on. There's times when you just put out what you're doing and say, God, I'm doing this and people are going to know that I'm honoring you. Now, if you're doing it to lift yourself up, don't do it. <laughs> but if you're doing it to say, God deserves this. He got me out of this and I told him I'd give him. I'm going to give it to him. Just to, it's like just a little praise for God to, to show people that, that you're not trying to like say lift yourself up. And that's when I give these stories about things that God has done in my life. I'm not saying, look at me. I'm so wonderful. I'm saying, this is what God does. These are what God will do for you if you will just be faithful and do it. And it also shows that I live what I'm trying to teach you guys. I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to teach you things that I don't have personal experience in. You know, not everything do I have personal, but I'm trying to say this is what God says. He is true to his word and he will give us what we want. And then he ends it with praise you the Lord. Praise you the Lord. In everything we need to praise God. Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day and thank you for that you care so much for us, that you are the one that wants to rescue us and deliver us. And all that we have to do is trust you in all that happens. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.